0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Delicious Ella podcast with me, Matthew Mills, and my wife and business partner, Ella Mills.
1: Hi, guys. So I've been so looking forward to this episode. So my publisher sent me a book that she was just absolutely raving about that she just published called A Monk's Guide to Happiness. And I read it while I was staying with my mum when I wasn't very well a few weeks ago. And it was just it was just absolutely amazing. Everything about it made sense. It clicked. And really, the focus is on the idea of happiness and that happiness can be a choice but we often need help in allowing that choice to happen. Um, Happiness is obviously a topic that we love to talk about. We've talked about it a lot on the podcast. It's something that unites us all and something that we all strive to have a little bit more of but can often struggle to do so. So our guest today works on the premise that too many of us are looking for happiness in places that we're not going to find it. So we're trying to find external sources for happiness when actually it lies within, specifically in finding a way to control the way that we react to our thoughts. So just to give that some context, every day we're having between 60,000 and 80,000 thoughts, many of which, as we all know, are probably unhelpful or negative. And he believes that if we can get a better handle on that, then we can consistently choose happiness in our lives. So it's quite an amazing backstory. About 25 years ago, Gelong Tupten, gave up his Oxford education, his life in New York, and became a Buddhist monk. And just before anyone switches off and thinks, what can I learn from a monk? My life is so different from his. I just have to know that it's probably not as different now as you might think. He has a smartphone. He travels about 300 days a year for work, working with everyone from Google to Benedict Cumberbatch, as well as teaching meditation and mindfulness in schools, hospitals, and prisons, and the proceeds of his work, and then donated to charity to help open more meditation centers that benefit local communities, especially in the more deprived areas of the UK. So basically, we are completely honoured because he is an amazing guy. I'm obsessed with your way of looking at the world. And welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. So can we start with the all-important question? How do you define happiness? I define happiness as a trainable skill. Okay. You know, I think for many people, happiness is the result of what might or might, ha- might not happen to them. You know, I will be happy when, I will be happy if, I can be happy because. So happiness for many people is a thing you get when the world suits you or does stuff for you that makes you feel all right. Whereas I see it the other way around. I see that you can train your mind in happiness and everything else comes from there. And it's a choice. It's, it's something you can choose through learning how to be more at peace with your own thoughts, And and be less driven by negative thoughts. And maybe you can choose to have a positive outlook, even in difficult situations. So happiness is a kind of mental independence. And how do you train that within yourself? Well, the method I'm using in, in my life and when I teach and in my book is obviously mindfulness. But you don't have to subscribe to a religion or anything like a system of training you can just find ways within yourself to be in the present moment it's it's actually quite easy to just learn to be present and learn to be not so controlled by your thoughts mindfulness is a great technique because it gives you methods which are tried and tested over the centuries uh, but i really like to emphasize that this is something which you know even though i'm a buddhist monk i'm not going around trying to turn people into buddhists it's something anyone can do And you don't even have to call it mindfulness. I work with quite a few schools where they call it stillness Mm. or moments of peace. I mean, you can call it anything, really. Mm.
1: Because I think sometimes that's the barrier for entry for people. It's you say meditation Mm. and people think, oh my goodness, Mm. I'm going to have to sit on my own Mm. in a quiet room. Maybe you've got children or you Mm. live in a noisy area and that's in itself probably quite challenging. Mm. And you think, I'm going to have to sit in this quiet room, which I don't have, for an hour, cross-legged, I can't do that. And actually, as you said, it doesn't have to be so, for want of a better word, extreme. It's actually just finding those little things. And you wrote this passage in your book, and I hope you don't mind if I quote it, but I just thought it was the most beautiful definition of happiness that I've I've read. And you said when we are searching for happiness, there is a sense of hunger, of incompleteness. We are wrapped up in the expectation of getting what we want and the fear of not getting it. We feel trapped by uncertainty. We think we can only be happy when our goals are completed which means that life is always about the future rather than the present. Thoughts and emotions create a storm inside us and we easily become their slaves. Moment to moment, we might find ourselves in an argument with reality, constantly wishing things were different. Happiness involves mastering these thoughts and emotions and embracing things just as they are. It means we relax and stop trying to manipulate our circumstances. If we can learn how to rest deeply in the present, even when facing difficulties, and we can train our minds not to judge, we can discover within ourselves a tremendous source of happiness and satisfaction." And I'm just I think I need to print that out and hang it everywhere because it is it's so incredible. It's so true. And as you said, I'd love to just talk about that, that need to be in the present because we do seem to live with a lot. And I don't know if fear is almost the best word where we're kind of anticipating what we have to do that day, the to do list, our fear of not getting to the next stage in life or worrying about things that have happened. How how kind of first of all, central to happiness is present. And how does meditation and mindfulness tap into that?
2: I think it's true that happiness for most people is something in the future, like the next thing, then I'll be happy. I will be happy when it's always something like we're searching for it. And it's always in the future. And I think our minds are, are really addicted to being either, either in the past or the future. It's, it's very hard for us to be present, maybe more now than ever, because we're, so distracted.
1: Do you think phones play a big part yeah, in that as well? Yeah. I, I noticed, and myself included, it's almost like we can't sit still anymore. It's mm. like we desperately need distraction. You can't just sit for like five minutes, quietly on mm. the bus or something like that. You've got to get out your phone and be looking at something.
2: I mean, before we had phones, what when we stood in a queue, what did we do? We just stood in a queue. Now we're standing in a queue and checking our phone. And I'm not against phones. I mean, I, I've got one too. We've all got phones, but I think it's interesting how it's taken us away from the present moment. It's made us more distracted, more constantly in the future or the past. And so happiness for many people is like that too. It's about something they had in the past or they want to have in the future. They don't realize that it's here in the present moment. And what it is, is that it's a state of mind. I mean, let's really think about it. You know, if somebody, if somebody has something that makes them happy like they're in a situation that they really like they're lying on a beach they're on holiday they're lying there in the sun they're really happy what is actually happening to them in that moment in their mind they're fully present mm. and they, they don't worry about stuff they're, they're not at work they're not thinking about home they're just in the moment well isn't that a skill of the mind that you could train anywhere I mean, I like to stand in the middle of London in Piccadilly Circus or Leicester Square and experience the same thing as if I was lying on a beach, which is simply to be present and not to be worried.
0: And that presence for you has been trained through meditation. Yes. And how, how long do you meditate for each day and what do you think is the kind of… Maybe the minimum requirement that you yeah do to I protein. I
2: do I do a little session each day I maybe do mm, twenty minutes or something in the evening but actually I often encourage people just to do ten minutes to start with.
1: So can we go back to your to the monastery? Yeah. and how how you got into all of this?
2: My story is quite extreme because I, <laughs> I became a Buddhist monk, and I'm not suggesting that's what everyone should do. It's just for me. I was in such an extreme state of stress. So I was living in New York and I was living a really I would I would describe it as a wild lifestyle in that I was always going to parties. I was very excessive, excessive with with my lifestyle with, with like alcohol and and not looking after my body, eating really really junk food. I never ever cooked in, I had a little flat in Greenwich Village in New York. The only time I ever used the stove was to make popcorn for a party. (laughs) (laughs) The rest of the time, it was always just grabbing a sandwich, grabbing junk food here and there. And it made me very ill. And the stress and the worry, I was having panic attacks. I was having episodes of depression. I got very unwell. I literally woke up one morning with all the symptoms of a heart attack.
1: And how old were you at that point?
2: I was 21. Yes, so young. And I was frightened. And I had no family around me. I actually had no health insurance either. So I'm in the States with no health insurance. So I couldn't see proper doctors. I just had to get myself well enough to come back to the UK. And then obviously we've got our health system here. And the doctors told me, you have had a burnout through stress and through excessive living. And you need to learn how to calm yourself down. So I thought about meditation. I'd never done it before, but I knew about it through my parents My parents had always talked about it. I'd never done it, but I thought about that. And then, you know, everything just comes together at the right time. Mm. So at that time, an old school friend of mine said, there's a Buddhist monastery in Scotland. (laughs) It's called Sami Ling, and you can go there for one year. They just started this thing in in this Tibetan Buddhist monastery in Scotland, where they accepted people for a one-year period of being a monk. And I thought, that's that's like taking a year out. It's almost like rehab or something. Mm. I'm going to go there and this will sort me out. I just knew, I felt deep in my bones this would be good for me. So I went to this monastery. It's in the borders of Scotland. And literally after four days, I was a monk.
1: Wow. I just
2: wow. loved it. I thought, sign me up. I'm in. It was lots lots of young people were there at the time. and It was a whole influx of about 40 or 50 young people who were kind of burned out from from partying or from, you know, living crazy lives or just lost and a lot of people with very fragile mental health. I mean, I was having all these panic attacks and then all these other people were telling me they were experiencing the same thing. So it felt like we were on a journey together. But I was never going to stay longer than a year.
1: And what did you do during that year?
2: During that year, I worked in the monastery. So, you know, I would do cooking and cleaning or I think my job was making beds for the guest house. And I would meditate. I would learn, you know, they taught us meditations. Also, it was a very, um, like a family environment. I really got to know the other monks and nuns, and we were like pals together. It was a really nice feeling. But I was planning to leave at the end of the year, and something stopped me. At the end of that year, I decided, I'll just try another year. Just see how this goes. And it was in my second year that I went into a solitary meditation retreat for nine months. And during that time, I went very deep into myself and very deep into what my beliefs are and what, what I think is important for me in life. And that's, that's when I decided to be a monk for my whole life, like take the full, the full vows, the life vows.
1: So one question I wanted to ask, and we were just talking about it on our way over here as well, and it's something that we've talked about a lot, and it's, it's quite a kind of sad thing to say in some ways, but it feels to me the happiness in being a choice is also discipline. There's a, definitely a sense of kind of almost self-discipline in, in committing to things that allow your happiness to come to the surface. I and agree. I, I really liked the way you talked, especially when you were talking about the four-year meditation retreat that you did, that you're very honest about the fact that, although it's obviously really helped you in your life and brought you to an amazing place, that it wasn't easy that it was really hard. And there was another beautiful quote you said, I remember thinking it was like having open heart surgery with no anesthetic. You're backed into a corner with your most painful thoughts and feelings with no distraction or escape. At times, it was the unhappiest period of my life. Yet in the end, it taught me a lot about happiness. I learned that happiness is a choice and something we can tap into within ourselves. And I thought I'd just love to tap into that idea of kind of discipline. And as you said, the fact that, you know, it is about coming back to that mindfulness all the time and And I guess making these things a priority and not expecting it just to come to us.
2: I agree. I think we need a certain kind of discipline for anything in life. If you have a job, you've got to be disciplined enough to go to work each day. If you're bringing up kids, you've got to have that discipline of doing what's right for the kids and and looking after your family. Whatever we do requires discipline. And if you want to make changes in your life with eating or with exercise or meditation, you've got to make a choice and then you've got to stick with that choice. But what I do find is that people are frightened, like you said at the beginning, frightened of meditation because they think, oh my goodness, I haven't got time for that. Don't ask me to sit still for an hour in a a cross-legged in a room. But actually, it's 10 minutes and it's not even cross-legged. You can sit (laughs) on a chair. And once you start practicing the meditation every day, it starts to build up inside you as a feeling of peace and happiness. And you kind of want more of it. It's the same with healthy eating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. When, when people change their lifestyle from unhealthy eating to healthy eating at first you know they're giving up sugar or whatever and they feel like oh they're craving what they used to eat and eventually their body just sings with health i mean mm. you've found this yourself mm, in totally. your own story and then you want that healthy food it's not like a you're not depriving yourself you're actually nourishing yourself and you feel good so there's a, like a transition period when it I, works
1: yeah i completely agree and i think it's that when you're making new habits you need discipline because also there's no such thing as a quick fix you know, I'm sure, you know, the first day that you bring mindfulness meditation into your life, life isn't going to change in that 24 hour period. It is about that sense of consistency. And it's, as we say, in that sense of discipline, but in time you feel the benefits and you reap the reward of it so much that actually most days it comes really easily because it's been such a life enhancer that why would you not want to do it? But there were a couple of other kind of pillars of happiness that you touched on. And I know compassion was one and and freedom was the other. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about those.
2: Well, I do think that one of the things that makes us most unhappy is when our relationships are full of conflict. And I mean that can be at a very big level in terms of major hurt, or it can just be the day-to-day irritations that we have with each other. I mean, what winds us up more than anything else is kind of other people, isn't it? (laughs) How they speak to us, or what they do, or what they say, or even how they look at us. Like, why? Why is he looking at me like that? He doesn't like me. You know, this kind of constant feeling that other people are on our case, or getting on our back about stuff. So I think compassion is actually also a trainable skill. It's where you learn how to understand other people's stress and you don't feel that they're out to get you. You just feel compassion for them in their own pain and suffering or they're lost in their own confusion or their own negativity and that's why they're behaving like this. And I just, I just happen to be standing in front of them, but it's not nothing to do with me. And if you understand that, you can train yourself to feel a kind of forgiveness for other people. And then that removes stress, obviously, for yourself, but also improves the relationship. And then I also think at a deeper level, I think we are all here on this planet to communicate and to help each other. And so when you can live a more compassionate life, you start to feel like your life has a a greater meaning.
1: Totally. People always say that you get more joy from doing nice things for other people than you do for yourself. And I think that is so, so, so true.
2: I think so. And I think like with both of you as well, the work you do educating people and and helping people become healthier. It's a service thing, isn't it? I mean, sure, there's a business aspect to it. But really, it's about wanting to help the world to become happier, healthier people. It really is. It becomes, you know,
0: we feel so lucky
2: each day to wake up
0: and do something that we've such enormous purpose in. And we want the business to be commercially successful. But it's really a It's a kind of byproduct, and I think that if it ever became the core purpose of Deliciously Hella, then we'd probably lose what we've been able to create so far.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I know for me when I found that sense of kind of purpose and mission and that desire to kind of connect with other people and try and make a difference in what we were doing, completely changed my mental health, which wasn't in a great place at that point. And I felt that sense of mission and connection and purpose and ability to relate properly to other people was was so powerful and I think it's been really interesting because obviously you know what we do we're very open about you know I've been very open for example about my health issues which is what led to us being where we are today and you know Matt's mum who who's so phenomenally close with passed away last year and you know you you've been very open about that experience and what's interesting is as a result lots of our readers our listeners have been very open with us in return and what you realize is that we're all going through different things and different hardships at different points in life and actually it's so normal to be experiencing really challenging times but we live in a very closed off society we're not that open about our challenges and it's incredible then when you you do get that sense of compassion for people and that connection and it makes the world a much nicer place to live in
2: and also your your own personal history of suffering becomes the thing that enables you to help other people For example, with me, I I arrived at that monastery really broken, really unwell and full of panic and anxiety. And then I learned how to deal with that through meditation. And now when I'm helping people, I know what they go through. Mm -hmm. And I've been there. And that suffering that I went through gives me a great impetus to want to help people. And the same with you, with with your story with health and how you turned your life around. Actually, you must look back and think, it's really good that you went through that darkness. It's made you able to help yourself and help others.
1: 100%. I wouldn't change it for anything. And I think it's also an amazing experience in learning that there's there's always a silver lining and that actually you can always find that silver lining. And that is a really phenomenally powerful and empowering lesson, I think, in life. But again, you've got to dig pretty deep to find it and I think that's the challenges that we, we don't often want to do that.
0: But yeah, I, I I totally agree and I think some of the the greatest happiness is turning something that's been a really bad thing for you into something that's really good for other people and, and like Ella, I saw it with my mum as well with her illness and she turned the the whole focus of the last year of her life when she was going through, you know, it was not pleasant having brain cancer but her focus was on trying to help people who didn't have the opportunities that she did um, in treatment in brain cancer. And it was innate in her to do that anyway. But I know also it kept her enormously happy in what would otherwise, I think, would have been an even more difficult time.
2: That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And and it really is about your own suffering becoming the catalyst for helping others. Yeah. And then you have a different relationship with your suffering. Like I look back at my periods of depression and anxiety and I feel enormously grateful for that because it's given me so much knowledge And it's given me an ability to connect with other people. What happened to me was that I'd always been physically in quite good health, except that period when I first became a monk. But then years after that, I always had good health. And then about 10 years ago, I got very ill with typhoid. I went to India and I caught typhoid. And they cured me of the typhoid, but it left me in a very weakened state. So I actually had a kind of chronic fatigue for about five years. And that was horrible, obviously, But looking back, it's made me have more empathy for people who suffer. Because now when people talk about their health issues, I've been there. And I can relate to them. And
0: you were able to remain happy through that time.
2: What I found is that actually that fatigue I was experiencing went away when I learned not to fight it, when Mm -hmm. I learned to relax into it. So actually Mm -hmm. during that period, I carried on teaching and traveling and doing the the things I do. And I found that Obviously it wasn't pleasant many times but through self-acceptance the fatigue would lift Mm -hmm. because I discovered that that very strong state of exhaustion is very much about pushing away the feelings and wanting to feel better but instead just relaxing into how you feel. That doesn't mean you're going to stop seeking medical treatment or trying to get better but just relaxing into the moment can make you happy.
0: Amazing. Amazing.
1: And what about freedom? How does that pillar come into it?
2: Well, in my book, I really try to define happiness as freedom. And when I talk about freedom, I say, okay, look, we live in this free society. We can make choices. We can dress how we want. We can vote how we want. We can follow religions that we want. But inside our mind, are we really free? Because deep down inside, our minds often do stuff we don't want them to do. Mm. Our minds go into dark places. Our minds go into distraction. We're not mentally free. In a way, we, we feel imprisoned by our thoughts and emotions. So for me, m- mindfulness and meditation are about learning that freedom where you don't have to buy into all of the stuff going on in, in, in your head. You can learn to let go of it. And that's what those techniques are all about. Like a, a typical meditation technique is where you focus on your breathing and then your mind wanders, but you bring your attention back to your breathing very gently, very softly, bringing your attention back. Every time you bring your attention back, you're learning freedom because you're learning to choose where to send your mind. You're saying to your mind, I'm not going to go into that distraction, I'm going to bring it back to the breath. So you're training in being free from those negative thoughts and emotions.
1: Tapping into that, there was this really brilliant moment where you described coming back to London after living in the monastery for a kind of pretty substantial period of time. And you'd had no idea what was going on in the world because you'd been in a period of isolation. So you know, technology had advanced massively and all kinds of different things had had come into play. And I I found it really interesting how you talked about the fact that everyone's face was buried into a screen. You kind of really noticed the speed, the busyness and the kind of constant bombardment of that kind of almost hysterical news cycles, which which I think are really interesting. And you described it as what felt like a zombie apocalypse. (laughs) And I'd love to talk about you know, how do we coexist with modernity where there is technology and there is social media and there are emails and there is 24-hour news beeping at us all day, every day. How do you continue to make that choice to find the calm, to find the presence?
2: Yeah, I was really shocked. I I went into a isolated retreat. Um, well, there were 20 of us monks, but we were isolated from the outside world uh, in 2005 for four years. And we had no contact with the outside world. And then when I came out of that retreat and I went to London, that's when the smartphone revolution had happened. (laughs) During those four years, smartphones had, had arrived and also all those different social media networks. And so I arrived in London and was just really shocked by the speed of things and also the way the news invades us. You know, in the old days, if you wanted to keep informed of what was happening, you'd choose to buy a newspaper, switch on the news, but now it's always there. It's invading our, our phones and you can't get away from it. And so I just think we've become more distracted and more speedy and more, more kind of frazzled than ever. But I do find that for myself, now I have a phone and I'm on social media, so I'm in that world now. But I find that if I do mindfulness every day, I can protect my mind. It's not so toxic I don't have to get so carried away by it. I, I can learn to pull back when I need to. So I believe that now with the world we live in, we need meditation more than ever as a matter of survival mm. to navigate that busyness of life.
1: It is absolutely terrifying. You see the rates of you know, depression and low mood and anxiety on the rise and there's such a direct correlation with the change of pace of life and it feels like we do desperately need tools in order to be able to kind of Function and genuinely enjoy the world we're living in. And And I think
2: a lot of that upset comes from the comparison culture that we're in now. You know, with social media, people, especially young people, are looking at pictures online of other people and they're feeling less about themselves, you know, feeling more insecure. They don't realize that most people are filtering their photos and they don't actually Mm -hmm. look like that. And, you know, they're presenting a glamorized version of themselves. But then, people at the receiving end of that are feeling more and more dissatisfied and more and more insecure. So I think the the game changer is if we learn how to make ourselves happy from within. And then you can look at social media and you don't have to feel there's something missing in your life. Mm -hmm. Everything else is a bonus once you've sorted yourself out internally.
1: Yeah, so it's all about internal happiness. Exactly. And so then two of the other obstacles you mentioned in terms of finding a sense of freedom and happiness are resentment and anger. And that that feeling of resentment towards others creates such a roadblock. And can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Well, yeah, I think we spend a lot of our time irritated with others, don't we? Yeah. We spend a lot of our time feeling upset with the things people say or do. But I think that's where forgiveness training comes in. And in the book, I've written a chapter on forgiveness with practical steps. How do you forgive? How can you train your mind to forgive people who make you angry? Well, the first step is to actually realize it's you experiencing the anger and that's something you can change. You don't have to feel that they put the anger in you. It's something in you already that you can start to change. And I think it's really about understanding the human condition, understanding that everyone who makes you angry is just coming from a place of ignorance in themselves and you don't have to buy into it. And in fact, you can think about their backstory, even if you don't know what their backstory is. You can assume that they have stress, they have stuff going on. You don't know what happened to them yesterday that might have brought them to this place that's made them into this irritating person. We don't know. So we can assume that they are suffering, they are confused, they are lost in their own stuff. And so if you train yourself to think in that way, you can learn to let go of that resentment because the resentment is really painful and it's incredibly bad for us you know they've proved that anger lowers your immune system mm-hmm. it's not good for our health it's not good for the world so anger is probably the most painful and heavy poison that our mind tends to carry and we need to detox we need to detox from our anger i mean it's great to eat healthy and you can drink green juices and do all of that but if you're angry yeah. that's the biggest toxin yeah
1: i think that's what we love about the podcast is that it's you know for us being well is such a 360 thing and your mental health and your happiness is such a huge part of that so just talking about how it affects us on a physical level i know you've done some work um, with different neuroscientists especially someone at yale Could Could you give us a brief overview of how meditation affects the brain?
2: Well, interestingly, meditation is a bit like taking your brain to a gym. If you take your body to the gym, you're going to get muscles. So if you take your brain to the gym, it's also going to change in a healthy way. And this is all to do with neuroplasticity, which is the fact that through training again and again, our brain will change and those changes will last. So one of the main things is that it stops the brain producing too much cortisol. Cortisol is that stress hormone that we go into whenever we're in the fight-or-flight stage. So we experience fight-or-flight 50 or 60 times a day. Mm -hmm. Which we're we're not meant to, right? We're not meant to. We're we're meant to feel it when we're being chased by a lion. But just having our phone ringing or an email coming through or traveling to work and going into a stressy state is like fight-or-flight. And our body produces too much cortisol. If you meditate it gets the amygdala which is the part of your brain that deals with that cortisol reaction it gets the amygdala to be less overreactive so it will start to calm down that cortisol also the areas of our brain connected with focus with empathy with compassion with happiness become in better shape it's literally like going to the gym you get a healthier brain
0: so for any of our listeners who have been following today and have decided that they now want to make meditation part of their their daily routine which i hope many have what's the best
2: way for people just to start i really think it's about setting aside 5 minutes a day or 10 minutes maybe in the morning and sitting down quietly on a chair and just learning to focus on your own breathing. I mean, it's good to go to a class if you want more information or you can look in books or apps or things like that. But actually, it's about you doing it yourself. Yeah. You just have to sit there and sit with a straight back and focus on your own breathing. And all you need to know is that when your mind wanders, you haven't failed. Yeah. I think a lot of people struggle with meditation because they think, They're supposed to clear their mind, have no thoughts. And then, of course, the thoughts come up and then they feel like a failure. But actually, it's all about bringing your attention back to your breath. I mean, this is one of the things I really tried to emphasize in my book was not to beat yourself up for your thoughts, but to see that the thoughts are the thing that actually bring you back to your breath. So you just keep bringing yourself back to the breath again and again. and Every time you come back to the breath, you are training in mental freedom because you're learning to choose what your mind is doing, and that's what will help you to choose happiness. Amazing. And so as
0: a rough routine that people might be able to follow, so to get out of bed, not to look at your phone, and just to go sit on a chair or at the end of your bed in just a quiet place and
2: just put out five to ten minutes. I think that's great, and I think it's really important that we don't look at our phone first yeah. thing in the morning. I mean, people literally start reaching around for their phone yeah. before their eyes have even opened. Yeah. And they shove their phone in front of their face and they try and like, pull their eyes open yeah. so they can see what's on there. Yeah. That's not a good way to start the day. You're just yeah. manipulating your body chemistry in a really unhealthy way. Yeah. But if you spent five minutes meditating, you're just settling and being present and then look at your phone and start your day. Yeah. But the other thing I do which is crucial is I do tiny little drops of it during the day, almost like drip feeding that mindfulness throughout the day. Mm -hmm. So I might be traveling somewhere or standing in a queue or um, waiting in a shop or something and I'll just feel the ground under my feet. I'll go into that present moment state many, many times a day. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise you could do 10 minutes of meditation a day and then the rest of the day, there's no connection with it. You've got to keep it going somehow. So how
0: about we do... A meditation to finish up the episode great
2: so i'll guide you through this so let's sit comfortably in our chairs sit with a straight back have your feet flat on the ground parallel have your hands with your palms down on the tops of your legs or on your knees and you're just in that balanced posture and start your session by making a very compassionate wish in your mind A wish that you may be more compassionate to yourself and more compassionate to others. That sets the tone for the meditation, that it's an exercise of kindness. So just establish that wish first of all. Okay. Now feel the chair under your body. Really just notice the sensation of sitting. You can feel the seat under you and behind you. Now bring your focus to your hands and feel how it feels to have your hands resting on your legs. Explore the sense of contact between your fingers and the clothing that you're wearing. You can feel the fabric of your clothing under the skin. Shift your focus to your shoulders. Be aware of your shoulders. Maybe there's some tension or tightness. That's okay. Just be with the moment, however it feels. Tense or not tense is okay. now bring your focus down to the front of your body your abdomen this is where you start to notice your breathing now this isn't a deep breathing practice it's just normal breathing so breathe without any effort and feel how the breath makes the body move A little bit of movement in the belly or the chest, in and out with each breath. Just focus on that subtle, gentle movement. Now bring your focus up to your face and feel how the air is moving in and out of your nostrils. Again, breathing very gently. If your nose is blocked, then breathe through your mouth and feel the air against your lips. So either the nose or the lips, there's a sense of focus and awareness, feeling the air brushing against the skin. When your mind wanders, just gently bring it back to the focus. Now, to end the exercise, feel the chair under your body again. Just feel how it feels to be sitting. You can feel the chair under you and behind you. And the last step is a moment of compassion again. Make a wish or a commitment in your mind. May I be happy, and may I help others to be happy. And stop there. Wow. Well. I
0: it was good. amazing, that the was baby amazing. was
1: kicking so much. I think really? she loved it. <laughs> baby was meditating too excellent <laughs> exactly.
0: Thank you so much. That was incredibly powerful. thank yeah. you
1: and um if anyone's got you know some time for some summer reading honestly the book is just really uplifting there's just really beautiful pieces in there and it will i hope give everyone some really good ideas for happiness so it's just called a monk's guide to happiness it also has the most beautiful cover i've ever seen so it's pretty good pretty good one to have at home and um we will be back next week for our last episode of season three so we will see you then thank you guys so so much
0: thank you so much thank you